in verse 34 of today's passage, in Mark chapter 6, Mark makes a statement that forms the theme of this morning's sermon. When Jesus sees the large and growing multitude gathered upon the shore, a crowd which Jesus, or which Mark rather, informs us that Jesus was actually trying to get away from in order to provide his disciples with some much needed rest, Jesus responds not with exasperation or frustration, he responds with compassion. Mark 6, 34. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. Jesus did not view people as an inconvenience. He saw them as shepherdless sheep, harassed and helpless before the ravages of sin and the curse. And he desired to be their shepherd. And he desires to be ours. This has always been God's preferred relationship to his people, as evidenced by the multitude of times throughout the Old Testament and New that the shepherd sheep imagery appears in the Bible. In undoubtedly the best known and best loved psalm in the Bible, the Lord is likened to a shepherd whose provision for his sheep, his people, is without fail. You could probably quote this from memory. It's, I think, the first extended passage that our Awana kids learn in kindergarten or first grade. The Lord is my shepherd, my shepherd, therefore I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. That psalm pictures our earthly journey through the wilderness of this world into our eternal home, which is the master's dwelling place, the house of the Lord. And everything that we need to, to endure and survive and persevere through this journey with all of its dangers and all of its strife and all of its struggles and all of its sufferings and all of its tribulations, our good shepherd is faithful to provide as he walks before us and alongside us. The goodness and the mercy of the shepherd ensures the eternal salvation of the sheep. Therefore, the sheep walk without fear and absolute trust in the shepherd's goodness and mercy and unfailing care. It's beautiful. And that was the Old Testament ideal of the relationship between 
the Lord and his people Israel. Unfortunately, that ideal was not often realized in Israel's history. God entrusted his flock to under-shepherds who were neither good nor merciful and who failed to care for his sheep. In Ezekiel chapter 34, God curses the shepherds of Israel, which included godless kings, faithless priests, and false prophets. He curses them for failing to care for his sheep. Ezekiel 34 verse 2, Thus says the Lord God, O shepherds of Israel who have been feeding yourselves, should not shepherds feed the sheep? You eat the fat, you clothe yourselves with wool, you slaughter the fat ones, but you do not feed the sheep. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled over them. So they are scattered because there was no shepherd and they became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered over all the mountains and on every high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search or seek for them. It's a scathing condemnation of those who were entrusted with the sheep's care, a condemnation that could just as easily be spoken of today's pastors as the kings, priests, and prophets of old. But God promised through his prophet Ezekiel That the day would come when he himself would come down. The good shepherd himself would come and he would seek and he would find and he would rescue and he would redeem his scattered flock. Ezekiel 34.11 But thus says the Lord God, Behold, I myself will search for my sheep and I will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and I will rescue them from all the places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries and will bring them into their own land and I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them with good pasture and on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture they shall feed on the mountains of Israel. I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. And then 500 years later comes Jesus who announces himself as the good shepherd who has come for the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And unlike all of the false shepherds who came before, Jesus feeds the sheep. And he cares for the sheep. And he binds up their wounds. And he seeks those who are astray. And he heals their diseases. And ultimately, he lays down his life for the sheep in order to rescue them from the ravages of sin and the curse and the devil himself. He says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. Namely, the shepherd that was promised in Ezekiel 34. I am the good shepherd of Psalm 23. 
I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own, and my own know me, just as the Father knows me, and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And that's exactly what he did. On the cross of Calvary, the good shepherd laid down his life to save the sheep whom he loves. And on the third day, he took it up again. Just as he had promised. No one takes it from me, but I lay down my life of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. I am convinced that if there were one biblical metaphor by which God would desire that each and every one of us know him and relate to him by, it would be the metaphor of the shepherd. Jesus Christ is the great shepherd of the sheep whom the God of peace brought up again from the dead by the blood of the eternal covenant, says Hebrews 13.20. That is who he is. He is our king, yes. He is our redeemer, yes. He is our great high priest, yes. He is the prophet who was promised, yes. But all of those biblical offices and all of those biblical roles are wrapped up in this one metaphor. He is our good shepherd. That is the throbbing purpose of his heart. That is his self-identity in relation to his helpless and harassed sheep. Now I want you to look back once more at Mark 6.34 and just, just marvel at this verse, this insight which Mark gives us into the mind and the heart of Jesus Christ for you. I want you to put yourself there on the hillsides of Galilee. You and I are the harassed and helpless sinners whom Jesus looks upon with compassion. And the compassion that he felt then is no greater than the compassion that he feels now. The Lord of the cosmos looks upon you with compassion for you are like sheep without a shepherd. And he desires to be that shepherd for you. The Son of God who called the cosmos into existence by the word of his power looks upon you in compassion. In other words, he is not distant. He is not unfeeling. He is not uncaring. He is not unaware of your affliction. And he is not unconcerned of your tribulation. He is a good shepherd. The great shepherd of the sheep. And this morning my prayer is that you would know him as your shepherd. Your personal good shepherd. Who relates to you personally with all of the tenderness and compassion and goodness and mercy and wisdom and power that that metaphor conveys. He is seeking you. 
to find you and to save you and to bind up your wounds and to heal you of your diseases and to carry you upon his strong shoulders and to shepherd your soul throughout the wilderness of this life and into your eternal home in the house of the Lord. So I want, before we even get into the text, I want you to ask yourself this question. Do you know him like that? Do you relate to this Jesus, this biblical Jesus, this historical Jesus as your near and ever-present help, as we sang this morning? Do you know him as your shepherd? Is that the nature of the relationship that you have with him? Intimate, tender, personal, caring. And if not, then this morning I urge you to come to your shepherd. Come as a little sheep, harassed and helpless and hurting and lost. Come as Peter bids you in 1 Peter 2.25, come to the shepherd of your soul. Mark 6.34 in this imagery of Jesus as the great shepherd of the sheep is the backdrop against which I want us to view this morning's passage. Each paragraph, okay, three paragraphs in the ESV, four in some translations, some formulations. Each paragraph shows us Jesus as the shepherd of his people, providing for them, for us, what they and we need out of his boundless compassion and his goodness and mercy. So we're going to walk through these four passages, these four paragraphs, taking each one in turn and seeing how Jesus relates to us as our good shepherd. The first portrait comes in verses 30 to 32, and it shows the good shepherd providing his weary sheep with the rest that they need. In Mark 6, 7 to 13, Jesus sent out the 12 to preach the gospel of the kingdom. You remember that from last week. He sent them To preach repentance, he sent them to cast out demons. He sent them to heal those who were sick. And we really don't know how long exactly they were gone, but the tone of Jesus' instructions give the impression that it it was quite some time. Well, in verse 30, they returned to Jesus. And that's where we pick up. The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught And he said to them, come away by yourselves to a desolate place and rest for a while. For many were coming and going and they had no leisure even to eat. And they went away in the boat to a desolate place by themselves. Can't you just hear the echo of the opening words of the 23rd Psalm in Jesus' words to his disciples? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want He makes me lie down in green pastures. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. That's what Mark provides us with a portrait of in verses 30 to 32. It's the good shepherd giving his tired and weary sheep rest. As I was writing this sermon, I I was having trouble putting my finger on why exactly I like these verses so much. They touched me, and they touched me very deeply, and I couldn't quite figure out why that was. And then 
after I'd meditated on it for a day or so, it struck me. Here's what these verses displayed to me. Jesus has more compassion on me than I have upon myself. He, he relates to me in a more gracious way than I often relate to my own circumstances and my own needs. I, I'm somebody who's very driven. I'm somebody who expects and demands a lot from myself and from other people. I expect myself to get things done. I expect myself to be disciplined. I strive for perfection. And I tend to think that Jesus is just like me, only worse. Therefore, I rarely feel, when I come before him, I rarely feel that I, that I measure up. I rarely feel license to rest. But I had to ask myself, verses 30 to 32 forced me to ask myself, what in my experience even remotely resembles green pastures and quiet waters? Where in in my daily, weekly experience is my soul restored as I rest in my shepherd? That's what Psalm 23 says the shepherd does for his sheep. That's what Jesus did for his disciples here in Mark 6. And that's what he does for us, if we'll listen. And notice that their rest was with Jesus. Jesus didn't send them away on an all-expenses paid vacation while he continued to minister. He went away with them and their rest was in his presence. What do you suppose the disciples did when they were alone with Jesus and there was no agenda and there were no things to do? When they had a few days of God-ordained green pastures and quiet waters, I suspect they talked about their journeys and they asked him questions and they ate and they drank and they laughed together. They rested in the presence of their good and merciful and joyful and well-rested shepherd. So I'd ask you the question, do you rest with Jesus? Or do you think he's like your boss, only worse? What in your life resembles the experience of Psalm 23, 1 and 2? Lying down in green pastures and resting beside still waters. Where is your soul refreshed in faith and in joy and in strength? Because listen to me. On the authority of Mark 6.31, your shepherd is not a cruel taskmaster. He is not like Pharaoh who demands brick but gives you no straw. George Mueller, the great Baptist of Bristol, England, who pastored the same church for 66 years and founded orphanages all over England. Orphanages, by the way, which were funded solely through prayer. He never asked for a dime. He was famous for his devotional life. Do you know what the driving passion of his devotional life was? It wasn't some external 
notion that he had to get through the Bible so many times in the course of a year. It wasn't that he had to read so long. It wasn't that he had to spend so many minutes in prayer. Listen to how he described the driving concern of his devotional life. He says, quote, while I was staying at Nailsworth, it pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, irrespective of human instrumentality, so far as I know, the benefit of which I have not lost, though now more than 40 years have passed away. The point is this, I saw more clearly than ever that the first great and primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. According to George Mueller, your first and most important and great and primary business every day is to be happy in Christ. The first thing to be concerned about was not how much I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state and how my inner man might be nourished. For I might seek to set the truth before the unconverted. I might seek to benefit believers. I might seek to relieve the distressed. I might seek in other ways to behave myself as becomes a child of God in this world. And yet, not being happy in the Lord, not being nourished and strengthened in my inner man day by day, all this might not be attended to in the right spirit. In other words, before all of his ministry, before all of his service, before all of his teaching and preaching and administration, his foremost duty was to delight himself to God, and that is my and your foremost duty as well, before all else. Your duty is delight. Before all else, before all other ministry, Jesus, your good shepherd, wants you to lie down in his green pastures and to sit beside his still waters and to restore your soul. And according to Mueller, the primary way this happens is by the word of God. He continues, Now I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the word of God and to meditation upon it. And thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, whilst meditating, my heart might be brought into experimental, he means experiential, the feeling of it, communion with the Lord. So we're approaching the end of 2017, beginning at least to look ahead to 2018, and I have a resolution, and I'm going to invite you to join me in this resolution. I'm going to follow my good and merciful shepherd to green pastures and still waters of rest, where my soul can find happiness and joy in my God, and where I cease from my striving and my labors, and I rest in his provision, and therefore am nourished and strengthened for the next lap of ministry. In other words, I'm going to make restoration a priority in 2018. Why? Because Jesus looked at his disciples and said, I know exactly what you need. You need to be with me. 
and you need to rest. Listen to me. Jesus is not glorified in weary, exhausted slaves who perform their duty with no joy. Do those words describe your ministry? Your ministry to this church? Your ministry to your family? Your ministry to your spouse? Your ministry at your work? That's not glorifying to Jesus. Weary and exhausted and joyless people have absolutely nothing to offer a weary, exhausted, and joyless world. Therefore, it seems to me that a primary, Mueller would call it the great and primary, duty of the Christian is to delight yourself in the green pastures and still waters of Jesus. Jesus is glorified in happy, joyful, well-rested servants who are filled to overflowing and therefore may pour out onto a weary and exhausted and joyless world. So we're going to kick around and connect next week. This is going to be one of those big primary questions. How will this look in my life? How am I going to lay down in green pastures and sit beside still waters? It may look differently for some of us, but, but I know this. It's probably going to involve food and drink, fellowship and friends, sleep and recreation. Those things nourish the body. And it will involve the word of God, which is the nourishment of the soul. That brings us to point number two. The second portrait shows the good shepherd giving his starving sheep food. Look now at verse 33. Now many saw them going and recognized them, and they ran there on foot from all the towns and got there ahead of them. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And he began to teach them many things. And when it grew late, his disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the hour is now late. Send them away to go into the surrounding countryside and villages and buy themselves something to eat. But he answered them, You give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy 200 denarii worth of bread and give it to them to eat? He said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they had found out, they said, Five and two fish. Then he commanded them all to sit down in groups on the green grass. So they sat down in groups by hundreds and by fifties. And taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, said a blessing, and broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples to set before the people. And he divided the two fish among them all. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up twelve baskets full of broken pieces and of the fish. And those who ate the loaves were five thousand men. To understand the point of this miracle and the reason why Mark includes it at this point in his narrative, I think, I think two points need to be made. Number one, I want you to notice that everything about this miracle, the setting, the language, the arrangement of the crowd, everything calls to mind Moses and the manna in the wilderness during the exodus of Israel. And I think that's entirely intentional. In fact, I know it is because in the Gospel of John, Jesus himself makes the connection. 
Mark is careful to state three times in this narrative that this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 takes place in a desolate place, literally, the Greek word is eremos, a wilderness, which calls to the mind of at least Jewish people steeped in the Old Testament, the wilderness journey of Israel, during which time God fed his people with miracle bread called manna. The way Jesus instructed them to sit by hundreds and by fifties calls to mind the regimented Israelite camp in the wilderness, Exodus 18. Furthermore, in John's account of this miracle, Jesus makes this connection between the feeding of the 5,000 and the manna in the wilderness explicit, John 6, 32. Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, and he proceeded to call himself the bread of life. So the feeding of the 5,000 is an acted parable. It's a miracle with a message. It's an acted parable in which Jesus displays for those with eyes to see that he is the new Moses who's leading the new Israel out of the bondage of sin and slavery through the wilderness of the world and into the promised land of our eternal home and that along the journey he's going to feed his people and provide for his people with the bread of life. Second point that needs to be made in order for us to understand what Mark is doing here and how it serves this overall purpose, you need to notice that this miracle is not primarily about physical bread. Notice again the precise wordings of verse 34. When he went ashore, he saw the great crowd. He had compassion on them because they were like sheep without a shepherd. So stop there. So what did he do out of his compassion for these shepherdless sheep? The first thing he did was not feed them. The first thing he did was teach them. He began to teach them many things. See, just as in the days of Moses, the true bread is not that which fills our stomachs, but that which nourishes our hearts. The true manna in the wilderness is not bread. It is the word of God that nourishes our souls. God was at pains to make this clear to his people. After he had fed them with bread, with manna from heaven for 40 years in the wilderness, he said this to the people of Israel through Moses. Deuteronomy 8.3. Moses says, And the Lord humbled you and let you hunger, and he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know. Why? Why did the Lord feed you manna six days a week for 40 years? That he might make you know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Moses says, the manna wasn't the main point. It was a sign. It was a symbol. If the people of Israel were to truly live, they needed to feed on the word of the Lord in addition to the manna that he provided. They could eat the manna for 40 years and still die. 
But if they ate the bread of life, the words that proceed from the mouth of God, they would never die. And the same thing is going on here in Mark 6. The people, according to Mark, are hara- or Matthew rather, are harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. That's the way Matthew describes them. So what does Jesus do with these harassed and helpless sheep? He feeds them the word. He first teaches them many things and then he feeds them manna in the wilderness just like God did so many centuries before. Everyone of the 5,000 men went home satisfied in their stomachs that day, but we know from Jesus' words to the same crowd the next day in John chapter 6, only a few of them went home restored in their souls. Again, we'll refer to the Apostle John who saw this connection and recorded Jesus' interaction the next day with the same crowd. All right, So Jesus walks across the water, just like he's going to do in Mark 6 and in John 6. He comes to the other side. The crowd comes around and they find him and they say, give us more bread. In other words, feed us again. And this is Jesus' response to the same crowd the next day. Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. So if we put it all together, what we have in the miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 is an acted parable in which Jesus, the good shepherd, feeds his starving sheep, but not in the way that we might expect. The bread in this miracle is not the main point. The bread is the symbol of the main point. What sheep need most to endure through the wilderness of this world is not physical bread. They need the bread of life which the Son of Man will give to them. They need the word in the wilderness, and so do you. If you go to Mark chapter 6, if you go home this morning having heard of the feeding of the 5,000 and you go home thinking this was just an incredible display of God's power, Jesus took these five loaves and two fish and turned it into food for 5,000, isn't God amazing? You totally missed the point of Mark chapter 6 according to Jesus. We are the sheep in the wilderness. We are the new Israel wandering through the wilderness of this world, following our good shepherd, just like Israel followed the pillar of cloud and fire. We are going through the wilderness, and if we don't eat the bread that proceeds from the mouth of God, we will die. You will die without the word of God. So do not work for the food which perishes, sheep. Don't work for the food which perishes. Don't let your life be so materialistic that you think that having enough food in the pantry, money in the bank, insurance policies, cars in the garage is what life consists of. Don't work for the food that perishes. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And your shepherd will feed you in the wilderness of this world. 
So just as he commanded this crowd to sit down upon the green grass, that's not incidental, so he will make you to lie down in green pastures and he will restore your soul. But you must take and eat. If you don't eat the word, you'll starve and you'll die and you will not make it to the promised land. But if you do eat, you will find that his provision will never run out. If we truly understood how vital the word of God is to the health and sustenance of our souls, I don't think anyone would ever need to prod us to read our Bibles or to come here and be taught the word of God. We would come just like a sheep to a green pasture. We would hunger for it as we hunger for our daily meals. So point number two, your shepherd desires to feed you. He will feed you the word, so take and eat. Number three, the third portrait shows the good shepherd giving his faithless sheep a vision of his divine sovereignty and power. Verse 45, immediately he made his disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side to Bethsaida while he dismissed the crowd. And after he had taken leave of them, he went up on the mountain to pray. And when evening came, the boat was on the sea, and he was alone on the land. And he saw that they were making headway painfully. Literally, they were straining against the oars, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, three o'clock in the morning, he came to them, walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the sea, they thought it was a ghost and cried out, for they all saw him and were terrified. But immediately he spoke to them and said, Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them, and the wind ceased. And they were utterly astounded, for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. So after a long day of teaching and the miracle of the bread, Jesus immediately compels, the word there implies that they didn't want to go. He compels them to get into the boat without him, and to cross to Bethsaida. Then he went up on one of the mountains that overlooks the Sea of Galilee in order to pray. In other words, in the aftermath of intensive ministry, Jesus needed to restore his soul in God, just like he commands us to restore our soul in him. But on their voyage, the disciples ran into strong headwinds and a rough sea, such that they were making little headway, and in fact were being blown off course, because the text says they were heading east to Bethsaida, but they wound up in Gennesaret to the south and the west. From his vantage point, evidently, you remember the Sea of Galilee is more like a large lake. Evidently, Jesus could see them straining at the oars in futility. So he came to them in the middle of the Sea of Galilee at three o'clock in the morning on the water. Well, this leaves the disciples utterly undone. They're absolutely terrified, thinking that Jesus is a ghost. But Jesus allayed their fears by speaking to them. Take heart, it is I. Do not be afraid. And he got into the boat with them after, according to Matthew, Peter walked out on the water to him, started to drown. Jesus picks him up. They get into the boat together. And immediately when Jesus enters the boat, the wind ceases. 
And Matthew tells us in his version that those in the boat worshipped him, saying, truly you are the Son of God. Now that may seem like a contradictory reaction to the one that Mark records in Mark 6. Mark says that they didn't understand the miracle of the loaves, they were astounded because they did not understand the miracle of the loaves, but rather their hearts were hardened. It's no, no, no contradiction. Mark is explaining why the disciples were so astounded by Jesus. They were astounded because they had not understood the miracle of the loaves, but rather their hearts had been hardened when they had gotten into the boat. They didn't grasp the point of the feeding of the 5,000. They did not grasp that just as God had fed Israel manna in the wilderness, so now Jesus is feeding the new Israel bread in the wilderness. Therefore, Jesus is God. Why shouldn't he then walk across the water? In other words, if they had understood the miracle of the loaves, they wouldn't have been so astounded and afraid when Jesus walked across the water to them. That's what Mark is saying. Matthew goes a step further and says that when Jesus gets in the boat, they suddenly, a few of the dots in their mind connect, a few of the wires of faith connect, and they, they bow down and worship him saying, truly this is the Son of God. Now what's the point of this miracle? Why does Jesus do this? Okay, I don't think the answer is simply, well, the quickest way from point A to point B is a straight line across the water. This is not expediency. I think Jesus orchestrated this event in order to display his divine power to his disciples for the benefit of their faith. Four points in the text lead me to this conclusion. Just look down at the text with me, and I'll point these out very quickly. Number one, The fact that Jesus walked across the sea is itself an astounding display of sovereignty and power. I mean, only God can do that. Only God who commands the the wind and the waves can so bend the laws of nature to accomplish such a feat. Number two, the way Jesus speaks to the disciples reveals or is intended to reveal his identity. He doesn't just say, it is I. He says, ego I me. I, I am which is Jesus' unique way throughout the Gospels of relating himself to Yahweh, the great I Am of the Old Testament. Nobody else spoke that way. They thought it was blasphemy. But Jesus does over and over throughout the New Testament. And he does so here as well. Third, the fact that the wind immediately ceases when Jesus gets into the boat points us in the direction of Jesus commanding the winds thus displaying his divine sovereignty and power over the forces of nature. And fourth, although Mark does not record it, in Matthew the disciples respond to this incredible display with a confession that truly Jesus is the Son of God and they worship him. In other words, point taken. Mark states in verse 52 that the disciples had not understood the miracle of the loaves, but rather their hearts had been hardened. Jesus knew that. So what does he do for his sheep? What does the good shepherd do for his hard-hearted sheep? He gives them a display of his power and glory such that they may believe and trust in him. And their hearts were hardened no longer and they worship him as the son of God. If you are to trust Jesus as your good shepherd, you need to know that he wields this kind of power which is why Mark records it for us. See, our faith 
in Jesus in the midst of the storms will only be as great as our faith in Jesus as having power over the storms. If I am to trust Jesus in the midst of the raging wind and waves of life, I need to be convinced that Jesus commands the wind and the waves of life. If I'm to trust the good shepherd to lead me through the valley of the shadow of death, I need to be convinced that he has conquered death and that he holds the keys of life and death in the palm of his hand. It is one thing, and it's necessary, to know that my good shepherd is compassionate, but it is equally important to know that my good shepherd is strong and capable of bringing me through every danger and into safety. And that's the point of this miracle. I can think of no other reason why Jesus did this than to establish in the eyes of his disciples and us his absolute deity. Your good shepherd is God. And he commands the wind and the waves and he bends the law of nature according to his will. And therefore, you can trust him in the midst of your circumstances and you need not fear. Fourth, the good shepherd heals his suffering sheep. Verse 53, when they had crossed over, they came to land at Gennesaret and moored to the shore. And when they got out of the boat, the people immediately recognized him and ran about the whole region and began to bring the sick people on their beds to wherever they heard he was. And wherever he came, in villages, cities, or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplaces and implored him that they might touch even the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. This is one of Mark's many summary statements. Anytime Jesus ministers in a region, Mark usually summarizes his ministry in that region like this. This time, his ministry has been in the region of Gennesaret, which was a fertile plain on the western shore of the Sea of Galilee. The main point of this paragraph is obvious. Jesus is the good shepherd who has come to heal his suffering sheep. Everything Mark mentions in these four verses relate back to what God promised he would do in Ezekiel 34 when he came as the good shepherd of his sheep. Remember Ezekiel 34, 15? I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep. I will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. And that's what Jesus is doing. So so full of grace and compassion and mercy and power is Jesus that it just seems to overflow out of him and spill out onto suffering people. I want you to just picture verse 56 in closing. I want you to picture Jesus walking through the crowded marketplace, a dusty, hot marketplace in Upper Galilee, filled with people lying on their pallets, groaning in pain and misery, lifting up their feeble, emaciated, outstretched hands, hoping just to touch the very fringe, the tassel of his garment. And if they do, when they do, immediately they are healed. Everywhere he goes, everywhere he walks, he leaves healing in his train. It's incredible. Jesus has both the grace and the power to heal his suffering sheep. 
When Jesus looked out at the masses, he saw that they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd, and he had compassion on them. So I ask you this morning in closing, are you harassed and helpless? Do you, do you relate to that description? Are you weary? Are you starving? Are you fearful, anxious, or worried? Are you hurting or in pain or in misery? Verses 53 to 56 invite you to lift up your eyes because the great shepherd of the sheep is passing by where two or three are gathered in his name. There he is in the midst. He's here. He's here. And he's here for you. Stretch out the feeble hand of faith and grasp hold of him. I promise you, he will not mind. He will heal. He will save. He will be your shepherd because that's why he has come.